Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Poet and author Kevin Manwaring looks at poets who have graced the silver screen, from Shakespeare to the Beats and the Romantics to Slam. Hello, thank you for coming. I have been writing poetry for 20 years, although I came out of a visual arts background, studying fine art at college, specialising in film. Now, I've turned to writing screenplays, including a project about poets, which I can't really disclose at this stage. So it feels like I've brought these two worlds together. In this talk, I'll provide an overview of poets and poetry and film, and it's been a long relationship. The 2009 release of Jane Campion's biopic of John Keats' Bright Star is only the latest in an extensive and fertile relationship between poetry and film. The artistic echoes and resonances abound in films, between poetry and cinema. I think movies are probably closer to poetry than prose. In their use of symbolism and succinctness, their use of imagery, sound and economical use of language. But I'll focus mainly on the literal appearances of poetry on the big screen. Does that sound okay? Can you all hear me okay? Okay, so let's start with poets on film. Poets have been depicted in art for a long time. Cinema is a 20th century art form, and we'll be focusing on that today, but other media have portrayed poets, and here is the bard. This is an 1817 painting by John Martin, who's actually got a painting in the Victoria Art Gallery. Um, If you go in there, you'll find a very apocalyptic painting, his kind of trademark. And this is the stereotypical image of the poet with harp and wild hair. I don't know if you can just about see his white locks blowing in the wind. And I think he's the brother of Coleridge's poet from Kubrick Khan. Flashing eyes and floating hair. There you see it. And here he's about to fling himself from the rocks in protest at the invasion of Edward Longshanks and his English army about to cast their iron ring around Wales. Ironically, these days, when we think of the bard, we think of a quintessentially English poet, old W.S. himself, whose image is probably the most reproduced of all poets, even though there's still some debate over who he actually was. I won't go into that here. His plays have been adapted for screen more than any other playwrights, but here we'll focus on the man himself. Now, this actor you might recognise. He looks very young there. A young Tim Curry, who's starring in a six-part miniseries written by the late John Mortimer, God rest his soul, and it charted the riveting story about the great bard's rise to fame. It's called Will Shakespeare. came out in 1978. Has anybody seen that? I must admit I missed it, but I was about eight at the time. Um, Not strictly speaking a motion picture, so we'll move swiftly on to perhaps somebody you might recognise. So, Shakespeare in Love, the 1998 film directed by John Madden, Oscar-winning film, co-written by Tom Stoppard. The tagline, that's the little line you get actually on the movie poster, said, a comedy about the greatest love story almost never told. This is a jaunty Elizabethan rom-com with Gwyneth Paltrow as the bard's muse, 
and Judy Dench as a withering Queen Liz. Although questionable in its historical accuracy, it is a, it's good at depicting inspiration. Don't you remember the scene where inspiration strikes and old W.S. literally spins around, shakes his spear, his quill, and starts writing. A rather literal um, depiction of his name, Shakespeare, but quite good fun. And if you take it in the spirit it's meant in, it is good fun. Um, I'm not saying it's a, a masterpiece or the authoritative version of his life, but it's an interesting depiction of poetry and inspiration. And of course, this is the actor Joseph Fiennes here, looking very much the part of the young poet. Gwyneth appeared in her own poet's flick in 2005. Sylvia. This biopic of the feminist icon was written by shock horror, a man, John Brownlow. It starred Gwyneth Paltrow with James Bond actor Daniel Craig as Ted Hughes. Kind of strange combination, Sylvia Plath and James Bond. (coughs) The tagline for this was, life was too small to contain her. There was some controversy. Sylvia Plath's daughter and literary executor, Frieda Hughes, not only refused to cooperate with producers or allow them access to her mother's poetry, but also publicly denounced the projects in a published poem of her own. So this is one of the quite few films that feature poets, but none of their poetry because of problems with literary estates. Um, But still, I thought it was a pretty good film. Um, The film of another troubled literary relationship encountered similar problems. Tom and Viv, a 1994 film directed by Brian Gilbert about T.S. Eliot and his wife Vivian Haywood, as played by Willem Dafoe and Miranda Richardson. T.S. Eliot's estate banned any use of his poetry in the film as the portrayal of the American-born poet was less than flattering, and the tagline for this was, for better for worse, forever. But still, a pretty good film, actually. Um, So let's rattle on, although stay in the 30s, with something very different, Nightmare. Nightmare was a 1936 British documentary, one of the most critically acclaimed of all documentaries. It was also one of the most commercially successful at the time, and remains the film most commonly identified with the movement. By 1936, film output at the GPO Film Unit was divided between a production of relatively routine films promoting post office services, kind of like the little things you get in the post office these days on the screen while you're queuing up, and more ambitious ones experimenting with the use of sound, visual style, narrative and editing technique. Nightmare is firmly in the latter category. The music score was arranged by Benjamin Britten, and Calvacanti, and a rhyming verse used in the film, spoken by Pat Jackson, was written by none other than W. H. Auden, who also acted as assistant director. Um, Nightmare is an account of the operation of the Royal Mail train delivery service and shows the various stages and procedures of that operation. The film begins with a voiceover commentary describing how the mail is collected for transit. Then, as the train proceeds along the course of its journey, we are shown the various regional railway stations at which it collects and deposits mail. 
Inside the train, the process of sorting takes place. It's a masterpiece of editing. As the train nears its destination, there is a sequence, the best known in the film, in which Auden's spoken verse and Britain's music are combined over montage images of racing train wheels. Fantastic. Um, and this is one of the trains used in the film. I think it's a Scots Guardsman. I know train spotter, but that, that's the kind of train that was used in the film. Um, another person fond of trains and uh, be- who became a kind of national celebrity through his TV broadcast was Mr. Betjeman, who has a good connection with Bath. Of course, came here in the Second World War to work at the Admiralty and uh, had a house sort of uh, facing Whitcomb. A friend of mine corresponded with him, actually, and had a batch of his letters. Unfortunately, he sold them off to an antiques dealer. Um, but uh, he was very supportive, I, I understand, to this young poet. Um, so, yeah, he fronted, presented a whole batch of short films about British culture, uh, a series of short films about train journeys, one I managed to catch on BBC iPlayer recently. It was so charming and really conveyed his enthusiasm, his love for this country, for his beloved suburban Britain. Okay, so let's move back on to the big screen now. Bright Star. Jane Campion's exquisite portrayal of the brief life and love of Keats is perhaps one of the best films about poetry and one of the most poetic films ever made. It exudes poetry from every scene. Bright Star's 2009 film, based on the last three years of the life of poet John Keats and in particular his romantic relationship with Fanny Braun. It stars Ben Whishaw as Keats and Abby Cornish as Fanny. And they are together? Together and apart. Uh, directed by Jane Campion, who did the piano. Uh, she wrote the screenplay as well, based upon the biography by Andrew Motion, who also served as a script consultant for the film. Um, the film was entered into Cannes, um, cr- critically acclaimed. The film's title is a reference to the sonnets by Keats named... Bright star, what I were as steadfast as thou art, which he wrote while he was with Braun. Several other poems are recited in the film, including The Eve of St. Agnes and Ode to a Nightingale. Both Campion and Ben Whishaw completed extensive research in preparation for the film. That's a close-up of Ben. I think he was very much a part of the, the young, doomed poets. They... Uh, really inhabited the parts, I think. Both very fine young actors. Uh, many of the lines in the script are taken directly from Keats's letters, which are as well-known as his poems. Wishaw, as well, learnt how to write with a quill and ink during filming, and the letters that Fanny Braun received from Keats in the film were actually written by Wishaw in his own hand. And when she receives them, there's this wonderful scene, especially the one with the wind blowing through the curtain, and... The whole film just swoons with love, and it's a very beautiful kind of love. There's no kind of physical consummation of this love, at least not what we see on screen, because that may, may not have happened. But it's one of the most passionate, passionate erotic films I've ever seen in the deepest sense of the word. Um, it's absolutely exquisite. Um, 
This slavish fidelity to authenticity is not to last common. Directors have been known to take poetic license. The depiction of poets has been sometimes, let's say, fanciful on the big screen. Ken Russell, renowned for his spirited depiction of the great composers and his adaptation of D.H. Lawrence, Women in Love, a very fine film, rendered Byron and Shelley as romantic rock stars in his 1986 Gothic. Here's Gabriel Byrne, mad, bad and dangerous to know. Ken Russell's new romantic treatment of uh, Byron and Shelley, well, it took liberties, but I think it captured the spirit of them. It focused upon the famous knights at Castle Diodate in Italy where they shared ghost stories. And that night, Frankenstein was born because that was the story that Mary Shelley shared there. And there's a good supporting cast. Timothy Spall uh, is in it. He does a very good job as Dr. Polidori, who himself penned the original vampire story, although he's somewhat overshadowed by Byron. Um, and here's some romantic trivia. Mary Shelley completed her story, Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus, while staying here in Bath with her friend and Byron's mistress, Claire Clemons. And this, I think, is really um, apt for this talk. Directly opposite her apartment, Arthur Roebuck Rudge and William Thrice Green invented an early form of cinema, the biophantoscope, or kinetoscope. And the plaque can still be seen opposite menswear, bottom of uh, Milsom Street. Fantastic. And what is really neat about this is Frankenstein was to become one of cinema's first screen monsters in James Wales's famous 1920s version. So birth of cinema and the birth of Frankenstein side by side here in Bath. And Shelley himself had a house um, next to the Abbey, Five Abbey Churchyard, no longer there. Um, so, yeah, I feel a connection with this whole thing. Rarely... Real poets occasionally make it onto the big screen. Moving forward a couple of centuries, as in 1950s beatnik flick. Well, that's Shelley and Byron preening each other. Yeah, and that's the movie poster you can see from this kind of film it was. Conjure up your deepest, darkest fear. Now call that fear to life. Here we go. So, Pull My Daisy is a short film that depicts or typifies the Beat Generation, directed by Robert Frank and Alfred Leslie. Daisy was adapted by Jack Kerouac from the third act of his play, Beat Generation. Kerouac also provided improvised narration. It starred poet Allen Ginsberg, you can see on the right here, Peter Orlovsky and Gregory Corso, apparently based on an incident in the life of Beat icon Neil Cassidy and his wife, the painter Carolyn, the film tells the story of a railway brakeman whose wife invites a respectable bishop over for dinner. However, the brakeman's bohemian friends crash the party with comic results. Originally intended to be called The Beat Generation, the title Pull My Daisy was taken from the poem of the same name written by Kerouac, Ginsberg and Cassidy in the late 1940s. Part of the original poem was used as a lyric in David Amram's jazz composition that opens the film. The beat philosophy emphasised spontaneity, and the film conveyed the quality of having been thrown together or even improvised. 
Pull My Daisy was accordingly praised for years as, as an improvisational masterpiece until, that is, Leslie revealed in a November 28, 1968 article in The Village Voice that the film was actually carefully planned, rehearsed, and directed by him and Frank, who shot the film on a professionally lit studio set. So they gave the illusion that it had all been improvised, but it was carefully planned. Another beat poet, um, William Burroughs, went on to have his famously unfilmable book, Naked Lunch, filmed uh, by Cronenberg. And he himself made some unusual cameos as an elder statesman of the American counterculture, as in Gus Van Sant's 1989 film, Drugstore Cowboy, where he appeared as an aged junkie priest. don't have an image of that, but I do have an image of another real poet on the right there, Heathcote Williams. Poet famous for writing Whale Nation, appeared as a poet in Orlando, the 1992 film directed by Sally Potter, based upon the novel Orlando, a biography by Virginia Woolf. Uh, The story is basically commanded by Queen Elizabeth, played in the film by Quentin Crisp. To stay forever young, the youthful poet Orlando, played in both genders by Tilda Swinton, here on the left, lives over four centuries, first as a man, then as a woman, in this acclaimed adaptation of Woolf's classic novel, itself based upon the life of Vita Sackville-West. The film. And there she is. In a male form, I guess, but looking very much like the typical poet. Okay, staying in the, the 20s, in which Orlando was, was written anyway, and the first part of the 20th century. The First World War poets Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon feature in the adaptation of Pat Barker's harrowing book Regeneration in the 1997 film by Giles McKinnon, Regeneration. Their famous meeting at Craig Lockhart War Hospital. A psychiatric facility in Scotland is dramatised and there are scenes depicting how Sassoon helped Owen edit his poems, most famously Anthem for Doomed Youth, a very moving film. Um, A lesser-known story of a First World War poet is Heath Wynne, a 1992 Welsh-language biopic based on the life of the legendary Welsh poet Heath Wynne, Hugh Garman is actually called, who was killed in the First World War and posthumously awarded the chair at the National Eisteddfod of Wales. The cinematography starkly contrasts the lyrical beauty of the poet's native Meronith with the bombed-out horrors of Passchendaele. It was the first Welsh-language film nominated for an Oscar in the Best Foreign Language Film category in the 1994 Academy Awards. Very moving film. Uh, I think... Saw it on film on four when they used to show fabulous films on Channel Four. I think they helped fund it actually. Okay. Total Eclipse, nineteen ninety-five, directed by Agnieszka Holland, written by Christopher Hampton, quite well known as a screenwriter. The self-destructive relationship between nineteenth-century teenage French poet Arthur Rimbaud and his older mentor Paul Verlaine. Rambeau was played by a young Leonardo DiCaprio and Verlaine by David Thewlis and the tagline touched by genius, cursed by madness, blinded by love. Obviously not in that version of it but the main movie poster had that on. I haven't managed to see it because they deleted it uh, which is a shame but you might still be able to pick up a copy. 
Um, Wild, 1997, film directed by Brian Gilbert, starring, of course, Stephen Fry, who wrote The Ode Less Travelled, and uh, other books. He, he is in a title role here, and I think it is perfect for the parts. And there's a young Jude Law who uh, performs as his fateful object of desire, Lord Alfred Bosey Douglas, who ended up in Reading Jail for... Okay, we're doing... Dylan Thomas is depicted as a moral coward in John Maybury's 2008 The Edge of Love. Tagline for this was, uh, the only thing more dangerous than war is love. And it shows the crucible of his poetry, born in the tension between his childhood sweetheart, Vera Phillips, played by Keira Knightley, and his wife, Caitlin McNamara, played by Sienna Miller. Good film. You don't hear much of Dylan Thomas's poetry. He kind of mutters it quietly to himself. But you can see how that poetry was born out of those circumstances, out of these two muses that he had in his life. One too many, I think. Um, Dylan Thomas inspired a certain Robert Zimmerman. There's Dylan, actually, there. Uh, to change his name to Bob Dylan. And here he is in a pioneering pop video. And he was later depicted in a documentary by Martin Scorsese, No Direction Home. I think he counts as a poet. He's a very fine lyricist. Not such a great actor. Dylan has made a couple of forays into film. One a lot better than the other. Sam Peckinpah's Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, where he performs Knocking on Heaven's Door. And some risible 80s offering called Streets of Fire, which is best forgotten, I think. Um, so, moving on in pop poetry culture, here's Val Kilmer playing Jim Morrison in Oliver Stone's film Of the Doors, the band he was in. Um, I include him because Jim Morrison was a poet and also a film student at UCLA in California, and his poetry performance explored that crossover. And uh, I'll give you an extract of one of his poems. So that's Val playing Jim, and this is Jim playing Jim. Okay. So this is um, from Jim Morrison. It's just called The Movie. It's a short poem. The movie begins in five moments, the mindless voice announced. All those not seated must wait for the next show. We filed slowly, languidly into the hall. The auditorium was vast and silent. After we'd sat down, it grew dark, and the voice continued. The programme for this evening isn't new. You know it through and through. You've seen birth, life and death. You might recall all of the rest. Did you have a good life before you died? Enough to base a movie on? And clearly he, he did. Quite a good film, I think. Captures the spirits of, of the doors, anyway. A contemporary, more or less but somebody who actually survived, fortunately, was Patti Smith, a great rock and roll poet, fantastic poet. And uh, she had a long-term friendship with the photographer Robert Mablethorpe, you may know. So she's, you know, her images became quite iconic, as in this one here. And uh, there was a documentary about her life and work in 2008 by Stephen Sebring, now, 
don't know if you know this film. Before Night Falls, 2000 film by Julian Schnabel. It's the biopic about Ronaldo Arenas, an exiled gay Cuban poet played by Javier Bardem, here on the left, with two great cameos by Mr. Johnny Depp. And there he is. Um, any other role, he plays a prison guard with very short hair and a tight uniform on. Fantastic. Um, some memorable scenes in a Cuban prison and a powerful finale with a title poem recited against a montage of New York City. Very good sequence. Okay. Slam. Nearly finished this section. Uh, 1998 film. A prison gangster rap drama set in Washington State featuring slam winning poet called Saul Williams. He won the New Yorican Poet Cafe Grand Slam in 1987. The next year, he got cast in this film. That's him on the left. It tells the story of a young African-American man whose talent for poetry is hampered by his social background. It won the Grand Jury Prize for a dramatic film at the 1998 Sundance Film Festival. Pretty good film. Um, carry on this hip-hop strain. Eight Mile, 2002 film, directed by Hanson, starring the hip-hop megastar Eminem. Not, I must admit, a favourite of mine, but, you know, he's incredibly popular and he does use language um, in an entertaining way. And this film is perhaps most interesting for this kind of rap battle that they depict, which apparently is quite popular in the States. And again, this is modern poetry. You know, it's a living tradition. It's not just all stuff about romantic poets. It's not all Tennyson or whatever. It's a living tradition. So... You know, this is out there, and this is on the streets, and this is keeping poetry going. Um, another rapper, Moss Death, ended up playing, of all people, Ford Prefect in a big screen, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I don't know what Douglas Adams would have thought of that. And then there was, of course, another rapper, Will Smith, who became a very big movie star. So we've gone from one Will to another. Let's go back again. Uh, seems like we've come a long way from our Will, the Bard, but it's all part of this living tradition. So, um, poetry and film. Sometimes actual poetry is heard or even recited on the big screen. I want to give you a taste of some of that now. Um, a couple of clips for you, but a couple of stills to start with. You know what film this is from? Yes. 1972 film by Andrew Sinclair, with Richard Burton as first voice, Elizabeth Taylor as Rosie Probert. There they are. Petro Tall as Captain Cat. And Sean Phillips as Mrs. Ogmore Pritchard. And Victor Spinetti as Mog Edwards. Great film, but maybe not as good as the audio recording, which I think was far, far better. Um, obviously, it was a play for voices. That's how he intended it. Uh, but still, an interesting project. Dead Poet Society. So we're going to have a clip in a minute. This was a 1989 film from Australian director Peter Weir on Oscar-winning form with Robin Williams as the inspirational English professor John Keating who inspires his student to love of poetry and to carpe diem, seize the day. So we're going to have a clip from the VHS of that. So this one here. Yeah, brilliant. Um, this is one of the great scenes in the film when he starts the classroom rebellion Excellent. Great film. Okay, so moving on to Pandemonium. 
2001 film by Julian Temple. Don't know if you've seen this. Uh, Coleridge and Wordsworth go mad on laudanum in this spirited encounter by Julian Temple. Julian Temple continues to be drawn to radical artists of all persuasions. Here, Temple extracts an impassioned melodrama from the relationship between the 19th century poets William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And uh, Temple lives nearby uh, Nether Stowey, where Coleridge you know, used to live. In Temple's hands, there are close parallels between, this may sound outlandish, but it kind of works, the Sex Pistols, Sid Vicious, and Johnny Rotten, and the two scribes, whom he portrays as the pop stars of their day. Coleridge also shared with the Pistols a fondness for drugs, in his case, opium, or laudanum, tincture of opium. Linus Roach, the son of uh, William Roach, the Coronation Street actor, very good in this, plays him as a visionary and naive man in equal measure, while John Hanna gives one of his sour-faced turns as a dull Wordsworth, kind of the full guy in this film, which you know, maybe it doesn't do him justice, but it works dramatically, latching vampirically onto the other man in search of inspiration. But Emily Wolfe, as his sister Dorothy, if I can get that, or is that... Oh, maybe I'll show that afterwards, it's fine. Um, steals the show as a spunky, sexy groupie who has the hots for Sam. There she is, on the left. There they are, listening to Kevin's measureless demand beneath the Quantox. The result is both evolving and visually impressive. So let's have a clip now from this film. I think this film is particularly good because it makes the poems the set pieces of the film. And here we have an extract from Frost at Midnight. Two very good performances by the leads. Um, Okay, next up. Four weddings and a funeral. There is a connection. John Hanna appeared in both. Mike Newell's 1994 feel-good rom-com. That stands out, I think, for one scene... The recitation of Funeral Blues by Mr. Auden again, as performed by John Hanna at the funeral of his lover. Stop all the clocks. What a great scene that is. I haven't got that here, but I think you'll know it. So next up we've got another extract from Il Pastino. Sorry, that's very small, but you're going to see an actual clip in a minute. Michael Radford's splendid account of Pablo Nerida in exile. Suddenly the actor who played the postman that died shortly after he'd postponing uh, appointments at the hospital until the filming was complete. So it's a beautiful epitaph to the actor and to Nerida himself, of course. Okay, so finishing off. Poes, poesis in film. Poetry actually in the quality of the film itself. Poesis. Sometimes the presence of poetry in film is more subtle, a combination of imagery Lighting, editing, sound and movie magic sometimes happens when these things come together. So, images getting up. Man with a Movie Camera is an experimental 1929 silent documentary film with no story and no actors by Russian director Ziga Vertov, edited by his wife Elisavita Silova, I believe. Who helped and the, with the processing of, of uh, deleting and adding new frames in the film. She helped with the editing, his wife. Vertov's feature film, produced by the Ukrainian film studio VUFKU, presents urban life in Odessa and other Soviet cities. From dawn to dusk, Soviet citizens are shown at work and play and interacting with the machinery of modern life. 
to the extent that it can be said to have characters. They are the cameraman of the title and the modern Soviet Union he discovers and presents in the film. This film is famous for the range of cinematic techniques Vertov invents, deploys or develops, such as double exposure, fast motion, slow motion, freeze frames, jump cuts, split screens, Dutch angles, extreme close-ups, tracking shots, footage played backwards, stop-motion animations, and a self-reflexive style. At one point, it features a split-screen tracking shot, the sides of opposite Dutch angles. So he's developing a new language, but it seems to be very similar, I think, to poetry, really, the um, advances in modern poetry happening at that time also. Um, and unfortunately, I can't show you a clip, but I'm sure you can find some on YouTube. But I remember watching this when I was at art college, and it really inspired me. It was literally poetry in motion, the way he just ranged about with his camera and experienced depicted life. Um, really interesting, really influential. Um, and here's another avant-garde film, The Blood of a Poet, La Sang d'un Poète, 1930. It's an avant-garde film directed by Jean Cocteau. It is the first part of the Orphic trilogy, which is continued in Orphée, which came out in 1950, and was concluded with Testament of Orpheus in 1960. The Blood of a Poet is divided into four sections. In section one, an artist sketches a face and is startled when its mouth starts moving. He rubs out the mouth, only to discover that it has transferred to the palm of his hand. After experimenting with a hand for a while and falling asleep, the artist awakens and places the mouth over the mouth of a female statue. And so it carries on and carries on, very dreamlike. Um, Cocteau also did La Belle La Bette, Beauty and the Beast, beautifully done. Um, in cut through the film, surrealist images appear, including spinning wire models of a human head and rotating double-sided masks. Pure poetry. Something completely different. Apocalypse Now, Coppola's 1978 reimagining of Conrad's Heart of Darkness, used memorably The End, The Doors song, by our friend Jim, and also Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries in this classic, devastating scene. But there's a kind of a modern, brutal poetry in this as well. For instance, the haunting image of the jet fighter caught in the tree as they're going at the river. That's just pure poetry in the harshest modern way. Um, okay, I'm going to finish off pretty much with a clip from Wings of Desire. Probably my favourite film of all time uh, by a German director, Wim Wenders, who did Paris, Texas. And uh, it's such a beautiful film. The whole film is pure poetry. Half of it is in black and white, half in colour, a bit like Wizard of Oz. And it starts with um, a poem in German. Maybe if you start playing, if you can yeah, start when the child was a child, and hopefully you'll hear some of this wonderful poem by Peter Hanke, When the Child Was a Child. And thank you for listening. Okay.